Good morning, everyone. This is so exciting to be with you today. Um, I'm so excited about what God has been doing in here in Living Spring. What great worship, <laughs> fantastic, and um, just so many of the wonderful things that are happening. Um, well, I want to thank you also for praying for us, for Amy and I and our boys as we continue to serve the ministry of Empowering Lives, as we serve God through that ministry, for praying for us and for supporting us as we uh, want to desire to change the world in Africa, one life at a time. Um, you know, this, fel- this fellowship here and I, we have a long history. And uh, in fact, when I first came here, it was on staff in 1985, I believe it was. And uh, maybe some of you remember, John, when I looked like this, okay? No, I'm the guy on the right. Yeah, because I know we've, we changed, but... <clears throat> but, uh, okay, you go back, John. I don't, yeah, thank you. And to, to see what God has done. In fact, this church is so special. I think in terms of churches that can impact our lives, Living Spring Christian Fellowship has changed the course of my life for the better, I believe. But it's changed the course more than any other church. And uh, when I, I was able to be a part of this church for over a decade and still am as you guys pray for us and encourage us and support us. In fact, I met my wife here. I remember there was a new gal who came on staff that I heard, and uh, she used to sit right over here. I used to sit over there, but then I started sitting over here, and <clears throat> then we got to know one another. We were married in May of 96 and left for Africa in July, so um, that, that was quite a thing. And then my, my son Joshua, in fact, my family's here. Can you guys just stand up right real quick? Nathaniel, stand up. Amy, Joshua. You see the tall boy there who's now 10, he was dedicated right here on this platform when he was just an infant. Wow, what a journey. But we didn't come here to reminisce, did we? (laughs) Do you mind if I do? (laughs) Okay, I just keep going on and on and on and, you know. um, But this church has taught me so many things about faith, and one of the amazing things is that God is with us, and that's what I want to emphasize today. God is with us. Matthew 28, I love this part. It's the last few verses in the book of Matthew. At verse 18, Matthew 28, it says, that then, the, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Does it stop there? There's one more part. What does it say? And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you. Can we say that together? I will be with you. Can you imagine one of those 12 disciples? Here you are with Jesus after the resurrection, and then he's telling you, he says, now, go into all the world and make disciples. And they probably said, all the world. Right. 
And they're looking at each other. <laughs> saying, who's going where? And how are we going to do this? But those words, I will be with you. I mean, we see that same thing in the first chapter of Joshua. Moses is gone. Joshua's coming in. And God said to him, like I was with Moses, I will, I'll be with you. And he says it twice, a few verses later. He says, I am going to be with you. Friends, that presence of God with us is real. It is dynamic. It is powerful. It is tangible. God moves and he touches in exciting ways. My son Nathaniel is here. And yes, he's waving. <laughs> so cute. He's like, yes, I am. Um, well, just some months ago, I was sleeping, and as a parent, you feel that presence, and I opened my eyes, and for sure, there he was, and he said, uh, Daddy, I had a bad, I can't sleep, so like a, a great father, I said, honey, Okay, I'm, so I walked him. <laughs> so, so I walked him back to his bed, <laughs> and um, and we talked a little bit and prayed. And I rubbed his back, and what was what was special to me is is as we were there in that quiet moment to hear him. <sighs> now I'm all right. He said that. He said, <laughs> why did you say that, Don? No, he, he said that. Now I'm all right. It's the presence of the Father enables us to move through challenging things. And I know there's challenges now, economic, relational. So many things are happening. I, I'm sure each of us has a story, but friends, I want to remind us, God is with us. And I'm so grateful for God's presence. It's in my own journey, even being a part of this church on staff for a time, and uh, then being in that meeting where there was, among other agenda items, carpet, air conditioner, letter from Africa, where this pastor in Africa said, please, there's got to be somebody in your church who's willing to come. And I was at that meeting, and the chairman said, you know, who from our church would go to Africa? And I remember my head said, don't you dare raise your hand. They probably have spears. And my heart started beating passionately, and I felt the Spirit saying, Don, this is you. I will be with you. Raise your hand. And my hand went up, trembling, and the chairman saw it, and he said, Don, do you have a question? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no question, but I'll go. And, and he said, okay. Yeah, and everybody said, yeah, you go. <laughs> and, and if you survive, I mean, when you come back, then tell us what it's like and what opportunities there is for a living spring to get involved in, in seeing what God's doing there in that country. And for sure, I went. I went. I got on that plane. You know, I remember it was right here at this altar where people gathered around and prayed for me and laid hands. Some of you probably were there that day. It's like the first trip in 89. Here I go, and I remember that prayer. I'm like, yeah, God, here we go. 
let's go, you're with me. And we got in that plane, and then we got to Dar es Salaam, where I had to change planes. And there was quite a long layover, so I checked into this motel, and there was a storm, and there was rain, and it was kind of strange and a little bit frightening. And so I felt finally safe inside that hotel because people were speaking English. It was only me in my room talking English. <laughs> the people outside didn't know it, and that was weird, okay? I mean, I knew they spoke it, but when you're there, it's different. And so I was finally in my room alone talking to myself. And I was so hungry, but, you know, I was equipped. I, I had bought stuff because I was going to Africa, so I bought the little stove and the f- army fuel pellet and the soup. I was so proud of myself. Here I am in Africa cooking soup because I'm prepared. And I cooked. I lit the fuel pellet, and, and it cooked and cooked and cooked. It's like, please get warm. It's not working very well. I was so hungry, I finally just said, forget it. So I started eating this soup. The noodles were crunchy. The broth was semi-warm, and it was terrible. It was terrible as I was eating that, so I just set it aside, and here this fuel pellet was still going. Well, then I, it was my assignment to blow it out, and I couldn't. I mean, this thing was like a fuel pellet on steroids. I was blowing and puffing. I was waving things at it, and it just wouldn't go out. Finally, with all of my strength, I just blew on this thing really close, and it went out, finally, only to begin releasing these blue fumes, this smoke. You know, like one of those Fourth of July things. And the room's now filling, and I, I, I'm panicking, and I open the window, and, you know, smoke go out, out, smoke out. The, oh, no, no, don't let smoke go out the window. I thought, I'm going to be arrested. The fire truck's coming. And, I, and they won't speak English. I sat on the bed. This is true. I plopped on the bed, and I started crying. I, and it wasn't just one of those... It was like, and I I just like, God, you made a mistake. I can't even cook soup. And now here I am by myself. I'm going, I don't know these people, and they don't know me. It's like, they don't know me. Maybe I don't show up. No. (laughs) No, they're planning on you, man. Got to the village flew into that little plane, that little airport, and got out, and, and it got better because the people all had clothes, no spears, and, and I could see this group behind this chain-link fence, and I was getting off the plane, walking, and they kind of seemed to walk along the fence as I went this way, and finally one of them called out. He said, Don't Rogers? And I said, Yeah. And now they all started waving and smiling. Oh, so I got out there and then went through the luggage thing and they got in this Land Rover they'd rented and off we went to their village. We met at their church. Well, it was a mango tree. They didn't afford a building, but there they had a chair that they had decorated, put a blanket over. And then they started removing my, my shoes. And that was awkward. But then they brought a, warm, a basin and they started some warm water and they started washing my feet. And they made this little sign. They taped little letters onto this piece of cloth, said, Welcome to our beloved country, Brother Don Rogers. And that began a journey that I couldn't have anticipated, one in my life that really changed the course. As I saw the poverty that was there, but I saw the hunger for the Lord. One of the pastors that I got to know very well 
when I finally visited his village, there was a little boy in this, that was so sick, swollen stomach, flies in his eyes. I thought he'd been abandoned. I brought the pastor over. I said, look at this little boy. He's so sick, and I think he's abandoned. And the pastor then put the boy on his knee and said, oh, th- this is my son. Yeah, I go, God, Don, way to go. You, you're... God, what do we do? There are so many other stories that happened that first trip. In fact, when I came back, I think I preached for two hours. I mean, most people left. Uh, but you will remember that that pastor lived next to Lake Victoria, and we started doing stuff sales, garage sales, to help that pastor get a boat and, and a net. Were any of you here for those garage sales, the stuff sale? Raise your hand. Say, I was at the stuff sale. We'll make T-shirts. I was at the stuff sale. Um, we were able then to help that guy. When I went back that next year, he was not only feeding his own family, he was employing seven other men in the village. And I was hooked. I went back every summer. After five summers, then our pastor at this church and two businessmen from this church, they said, Don, what God's doing, this is bigger than our church. Why don't you start a ministry? So the Lord said, I'll be with you. So that was in 95 and then I had the privilege of meeting Amy and marrying her in 96. And off we went to Africa. In fact, uh, this was Empowering Lives International headquarters. There's a little room back here. Maybe you don't even know it exists. That was it. It's 10 by 10. It's the old library. And, and what we saw God do over these years is so exciting. All along, sensing God's presence, feeling Him, speaking to us, saying, I will be with you. Since that time, the organization with God's help has grown, and you've been such a dynamic, vital part of it from its, from its very beginning. And you've been praying for us and encouraging us, and I do want to show you some of the things that have happened now. This is Jacob. He was one of the brothers that I got to know very well. One day he was, he was trembling in a sense. In, in fact, can you... John, can you go ahead and go forward? Just uh, here we've got our family now. And this is Jacob. And I could tell he was so troubled. And finally, I asked, what is wrong? You can tell me. And he said, Don, let me be honest. He said, I haven't been able to feed my family for an entire day. And now I'm on my way back to my home, and I have nothing. This is a strong guy, a Christian guy, but he really had no options. That night I didn't sleep very well. I just kept thinking, God, what can I do to help Jacob? What can we do? And I had this photocopy of how to make a cement water storage jar, one of those like you saw. So the next day I went, I said, Jacob, let's try and make this. So we tried, and what was supposed to take us four hours took us two days. And it was the strangest looking dinosaur egg you've ever seen. This thing was crooked and ugly. I don't even know if it held water. We gave it to a school and walked away, and I knew this, there's no way this can help. But God joins us, doesn't he? All the time he is with us. In fact, I believe God saw the efforts we were trying because a few days later, I was in the city of Mwanza, a major city in that area, about an hour from the village where I was working, and I saw this Caucasian man, and I never, in that city, I never saw white people. And he was in a restaurant behind a window, and I just couldn't stand it anymore. I went in the restaurant, I walked up to his table, and I said, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but I just couldn't help but notice that you're, you're not from around here. And... <laughs> 
He, I, I, he said, yes, that's right. I said, well, can I introduce myself? And I told him who I was, and he said, well, I'm Stan Rowland. Stan Rowland. He is the founder and director of Medical Ambassadors for Christ. I was reading his book. I got nervous. I said, you're, you're Stan, Stan? Wow. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm following up on some projects and things that we've got going on. Do you want to come and see some? I said, yeah. Can I really? He says, yeah, meet me here after three days, and I'll take you. Just meet me here. I'll take you. He said, Chris, for the next three days, we're doing a very specific training you probably wouldn't be interested in. I said, fine. Three days, I'll be here. And by the way, what training are you doing for the next three days? He said, oh, well, just in the next neighboring village, we're teaching people how to make cement water storage jars. I said, do, do you mean the kind with a burlap sack and you fill with sand and the cement? It's exactly what we had tried. And he said, yeah, that's it. Friends, I went back to the village and I ran to Jacob's house and I said, brother, God is with us. And Jacob started making those tanks and he started feeding his family as he sold them. And I'll never forget, he put his shoulders back one day. He said, Brother Don, last night I was able to feed my children rice. Is that a big deal? Yeah. Because all of their lives, his children had eaten ugali, the cornmeal, the food of the poor. But last night, they ate rice. And from that time, I said, God, can you continue to give ideas to help break the cycle of poverty, to help people in their needs. And as we started empowering lives then, we began this training center. In fact, now we have five. And I want to show you now some of the things as we partner with the nationals. Each of those watering cans represents another training center that is now there with empowering lives. Each of them about five acres in size where we demonstrate the ideas in gardening, starting businesses, and other things. And along the journey, we've been able to start three Christian schools and two orphanages that are now caring for kids and a program for, recover, for alcoholics. But I, I, I don't have time to unpack everything. I want to emphasize just a few things. Here's our training center, people coming, gaining ideas, making bread ovens out of steel drums, becoming a business, improving their milk production. We train them, and we have camps, too, using our facility for youth camps, uh, pastors' trainings, women's conferences, and we, we baptize the believers. This guy came for one-day training, ended up making a bread oven and, and selling bread and supporting himself. Here's a, a fish pond. You know, if you've got a stream, you can dig this hole and put some tilapia fish in. And what we've done is we've built our chicken coop over the fish pond so that the droppings from the chickens and extra food falls in the water and feeds the fish, and they grow. Then you feed the fish to the chickens. No, I'm kidding. Then you, chickens, it's a cycle thing. So we're, we're teaching people how to grow uh, vegetables in small spaces. It's, it's uh, organic gardening, tree planting and growing for reforestation, for environmental concerns. Angeline lives in the Congo. We have a training center there. She's a part of a cooperative group of 50. We have five cooperative groups. There's, in fact, right now, there's over 450 people being touched 
through our Get Your Goat program and this cassavas. And uh, so we introduced high-grade stems. It normally takes two years to grow little carrot-sized tubers that they grind into and make bread out of. But this particular variety we brought in takes one year. And it's eight times as big. The first time she harvested, in fact, this is when she first harvested, she cried. She said, I've never seen food like this, and this is mine. <laughs> and the beauty of these stems is you, they're only 18 inches. You stick them in the ground, and after one year, not only do you have the food under the soil, but the new stems come up. You can plant 30 new plants from one original stem. Now you multiply out. And so part of the requirement is we give them 25 stems as a loan because the next year they pay us back the loan and they give 25 to 50 stems to their neighbors. So it just keeps multiplying out like this so that it's not just the people in connection with us that benefit. It begins to, the communities begin to benefit each other. These ladies heard we were coming, myself and a few others from our, our leadership, and they almost uh, 150 of them came at, in a parade with their hose. It's kind of scary. It's like, are you happy with us? Or... And they were. They were saying because of these tangible projects, we're seeing the love of God demonstrated right here in our village, and our future is changed because of that. And you're a part of this, friends. You've been praying for us and supporting individually, Amy and I, and also giving through your church. This is a food for life kit. Another idea that we do is, is uh, we train people how to take a grain sack like this, put soil in it, poke holes in the side, and you plant your seedlings in it. And in a small space you can, that you'd normally grow 10 vegetables, because of this, you can grow almost 100. And we haven't heard one plant complain. They just need soil and water. And so one of the ideas that we have in partnering with people is it, it costs us about $30 to train a person in Africa. Some few days, some for nine months, but we've distilled it down. And so that's where you can take this kit home. There's instructions. Make your own vertical garden. Put it in the front yard. People will think you're crazy. And, um, but for the investment of $30, that money actually goes to Africa, and we train a family. So there's a variety of ways you can partner with us. In fact, there's gift catalogs, and that's why you have this paper in your bulletin. If you go online, you can, if you don't know what to get Uncle Bob, get him a goat. He's never gotten one before. But we give it to a family in Africa, and we give Uncle Bob a card that says this was done on your behalf. We're also starting businesses. In that mud house are these tubes, plastic tubes stuffed with sterilized wheat straw, and in those tubes now, we're growing oyster mushrooms and selling them and eating them. They're fantastic. This is uh, one of our biggest projects, and we really took a leap of faith this year. It was just opened in April. Um, over a year, almost two years of fundraisings, we bought this plot of land in a very strategic place outside of a village about two miles from our training center. It's on a key road. All the farmers in that area, many of them have cows and they produce a little bit of milk, but they sell to sell it. There's just not enough market locally. But an hour away is the Kenya Creamery processing plant that will buy it. These farmers can't get it there. 
what we did is we built a dairy cooling plant. Two stainless steel collections with coolers. We built the building, borehole for clean water, and the whole thing. And when we started in April, our first week, we were impacting or buying milk from about 150 farmers. Now that's good. But we were only collecting about 400 liters of milk, and our capacity is 7,000. So if you're a business person, you realize if you keep collecting 400 liters, you're going to close pretty soon. But fortunately, more farmers started bringing their milk little by little, and when they realized we paid them on time, it started happening. And friends, I was just in Africa for a month, all of October, and I went by to see how this is going. And I knew how it was going in September. But when I got there in October, it was completely different because it still kept climbing. We are now buying the milk from 1,400 needy farmers in that area. We buy it from them. We sell it to the processing plant. They give us money. We pay the farmers who give us milk. And it goes over and over like that. And I am absolutely amazed that right now we are able to, because of selling the milk to the processor, actually start a little profit. We're making a little profit now and still buying all the milk. And we're putting 75,000 U.S. dollars into that village every month. Every month. And people are now paying their own school fees. Sure, a sponsorship program is good, but if we can employ the parents pay their own school fees, their own medical bills, their own clothes, and their own farms. And we're starting to see little businesses sprout. I don't know. This is exciting. This, this is the kingdom of God moving in action in practical ways through this dairy plant. So I want to thank you for your prayers. It, it, it hasn't been easy. On this journey now, we've also been able to touch orphans. Many of you have helped us. Some of you even sponsor an orphan in one of our homes. We've got 200 kids. Here's Josh. Um, about a, lot, a year and a half ago when we went to visit them, along with some of the kids from the orphanage. And in southern Sudan, we've been able to touch people there. It's been a war-torn place, but we built a small school. This is a picture of a pastor's training I did in February this year. Thirty women showed up. We didn't plan on that. They came to the door singing in the middle of a workshop. It's like, you're disturbing us? And they said, we're not leaving. We've heard you're teaching the Word of God here. Well, the pastors moved over. They made room. And so we were, we've been able to... In fact, one of the evangelists we trained since February has reached 240 people for Jesus. One guy. I, I'll hear the other stories. Here's our school. We're, we're now... It's, in fact, it's the first school in that area in over 20 years. Because of the war, it wiped them out. People were in exile. But now there's a semblance of peace, so our school is being built. And for two years, the kids sat in the dirt. They were happy to be educated, but they even did their math and so forth. Then we got a roof for the school. But this last year, a year ago now, through the gifts of friends like you, we were able to buy the desks that we needed. Now all the kids are off the dirt, everybody in desks. And it's just so exciting to see what's going on. There's our ELI school, 270 kids now. And when I first went there, these kids were so lethargic, malnourished. 
you know, dry, cracking skin, but now we feed them lunch every day. So just to see the tra- physical transformation that happens is just really amazing, to see the joy in the communities. This little girl, Deborah, she learned about Jesus through the school. Her grandma that she depends on, really, for her survival, became very sick. And Deborah went home and said, I'm learning about a God who is powerful. Grandma, can I pray for you? And this Deborah, little Deborah prayed. And the grandma was healed in 24 hours. The grandma came to the school and said, tell me about this God. God is using our school and our trainings to be able to reach those communities. I I have our our address on here um, because we'd love to hear from you. Would you please stop by and pick up any of our newsletters? Um, Amy and I send something out on a regular basis through email, so we'd love leads you as you pray for us. But I, I want to finish our time together with one final story. Because God is with us. And though Eli is, for Amy and I, it's our vocation, and we are privileged to do it. It is our career. It is our calling. But really, bottom line, when it comes to the kingdom of God, it all still comes down to a personal choice for each of us to be willing to step beyond our comfort zone to reach out and touch somebody else with the love of God, whether it's in your home, in your community, your school, your neighbor. For each of us, we have a choice, and there are certain times God speaks to us. He speaks to you, and he says, go ahead, speak up, or take that to them. Or invite them to this. And it's, it's fearful, frightening sometimes. But remember, God said, I will be with you. Friends, I want to encourage all of us, whatever our walk of life is, to move beyond that comfort zone for the sake of Christ. He is with you. And we never know what doors he'll open. I was driving from Eldoret, the city, out to our training center. In fact, there's a certain road that I always would take buying supplies. And there's a man that I continued to see on this corner, homeless. Sometime, almost 98% of the time he's on the ground, but a few times I saw him standing on crutches there. He's missing one of the, his legs. One time I had a few extra minutes and a few extra French fries. So I, well, I'll pull in here and I gave him the fries. Tried to introduce myself. It was hard to understand him. This man that was You could tell he'd been sitting there for months, maybe years. So I started stopping once in a while, giving him a little bit of money and so forth, for probably a period of two years. And one time I I was driving by and he was gone. That's unusual. He is always there. Now I pulled over, not necessarily to help him, but out of curiosity. And I went over there and I looked, because it's under a tree and there was clothes scattered around and his crutches and a Kenyan came up and I said where's George and he said he's there and here was a pile of clothes and I looked over and here was a face poking through them the city had gone through cleaning out the roads and they took the car that he used to sleep in and for three weeks he was on the ground and it had been raining for four And this man was trembling, and the Kenyan next to me said, I think he's dying. Now, my head said, don't you dare 
my heart said, I'll be with you. I looked at the Kenyan man. I said, will you help me? He said, help you what? I said, help me, help me, me carry him to my car. He helped me lift him up. We put him in the car. By the time I shut the door, there was 30 other Kenyans around my car. They looked very serious. I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. I said, is this okay? I'm going to try and help. They all said, yes, yes, help him, do something. So I drove him and I got on my cell phone and called my wife. We have cell phones in the village. It's amazing. I said, honey, we have a visitor. She said, is it George? Yeah. Oh. Friends, when I pulled in, our training center immediately organized one of our dormitory rooms and said, George will live here. One of my staff named Joseph, he began to help me because little did anybody know, George had some problems, physical problems. He had an infection in his teeth. In fact, he had four of them, one of them so bad that it, it had eaten through his face and was draining into his beard. When I took him to the dentist the first time, one, I had to carry him, but I, with, with certain back situations I've got, Joseph came, we, we had to carry him up two flights of stairs, we carried him into, into, the, into the dentist office, the waiting room, and people could smell because George was incontinent. He couldn't control his bodily movements, and so it was very uncomfortable for many people, including myself. Finally, the dentist saw him, and when the dentist came to tell me, I said, well, you know, what's the problem? The dentist actually shed a tear. He said, I've never seen anything like this. It took four visits, two courses of antibiotics. But little by little, George began to get healed physically and also spiritually because we prayed for him. There were demons disturbing him. But we kept claiming the power of Christ on his life until the power of Christ moved into his life. And through some miracles, we were able to find out where his home is. And I can talk more about that uh, with you individually, but I want to move forward with the story because we found out where his family was. But I knew this family is going to need counseling because a guy's been on the street for 11 years, comes home. It's not just everything's okay. They're going to need some guidance. So... I, I said, God, what do we do here? I was in a guest home house in Nairobi, five hours from where we live, and there was a man across the table having supper, and uh, as a guest house, you kind of say, what do you do? And I said, what do, what do you do? And he said, I am the director for the Association of the Disabled of Kenya. I said, so like you help people that are missing legs? And he said, yeah, it's exactly what we do. I said, look, I told him the story of George. I said, I don't know, do you have somebody on your staff that I can take with me when I take George home to help follow up and advise this family and counsel George and so forth? He goes, I know this guy. He's a Kenyan, trained in Europe. This guy is fantastic, and I'll give you his contact. I said, great, I'll pay his transport. I don't care how far I have to bring him from Kenya to reach this village, but I'll do it. And I said, where is this guy's office? He said, oh, his office there for the Association of Disabled is in Busia. Did I mention to you where George's family is? It's in Busia. 
I contacted this guy. He said, yes, when you bring George home, stop by our office. I'll send one or two of our staff with you. So here we are now on the journey. George, coming home. And on the way, we got through, Pastor Otani says, I want a sport coat <laughs> and a cap. <laughs> so we stopped into this swap meet, got him a sport coat and a baseball cap, and uh, off we are to the village. But before we left Eldoret, that town, I stopped at the same corner that he lived on for 11 years. I put a chair there. We carried George, put George on the chair, and people started gathering. And uh, I said, friends, George is going home. We found his home, his family's accepted to take him back, and so do any of you have something to say? And I did that because, you know, the last time those people around there had seen George, they saw a white guy carrying him away. I didn't want any rumors, you know, I think they took him for research, you know, something. George is gone, we don't, so I wanted everybody to know, look, he's going home, we found his family, do you have anything to say? It was silent, but one guy said, let's take an offering. Let's take a collection for him. So they passed this hat around that poor crowd and collected $12. They handed it to me. I handed it to George. George pushed it back to me, and off we went. We reached the Association of the Disabled Office after two and a half hours. We went inside. We picked up the staff person, and on my way out of their office, I noticed this pile of wheelchairs. I said, wow. I said, can George get one of those? And they said, well, it's possible, but they're not free. And I said, yeah, I can tell. And I thought, you know, two, three hundred bucks. And um, so he said, you have to pay the transport that brought it here from Mombasa. Uh, the other costs are, are covered, but you have to pay the transport. The transport was $12. <laughs> I said, I'll be right back. I went to the car, brought that money. He gave me the receipt, and off we went to George's home. This last time I was there in Kenya in October, I was with Joseph, the staff person who helped me so much. And when I was with Joseph, he told me, he says, Don, did you hear that George is home? I said, oh, yes, we took him home. He says, no, he's really home. He passed away in June. I hadn't heard that. I was sad for a moment, and then I remembered what happens to God's kids when we go home. We get new bodies. And I could just for that moment imagine George without his crutches, jumping, leaping, in the presence of God who cares, the presence of this God who promised I will be with you always. 